going on as, as far as jobs and social change. Um, what could, what could, we're talking about blacks, the community, um, in the 40s Well, segregation was still primarily existing even in the 50s, the early 50s. Segregation Talk was still that. here at school, you know. The school integration, I think, was 1954. Right. But again, that was just on the books. It wasn't a reality. As we know, segregation still existed, uh, just like it certainly did in medicine. I would say, you asked me about the type of blacks, all right? I went into practice in 1944, and that's where I can tell you about the jobs, hey, the patients that I saw. There, and most of them were school teachers. School teachers at that time had one of the best jobs because it had a certain amount of permanency to it. And uh, uh, so they were uh, pretty well paid. We had people in, uh, in civil service and the post office in those days. Blacks had good jobs there. They had pretty good jobs in the factory at Chevrolet out here in Fenton. And also this place on Union had just closed. Uh, they, they did a lot of work there in factories. And a lot of small businesses were handled by blacks as a result of segregation. For instance, you couldn't go to a white barbershop. So many things that now you just take for granted Therefore, the blacks' restaurants, friends, you couldn't go eat in a white place. So therefore, the black restaurants did very well. And they were nice restaurants uh, that were developed. They even had black hotels, which is pretty good because you couldn't stay in a white hotel. So therefore, as a result of segregation, as you see all through the South, too, was here. Mm -hmm. Because they developed because you had to go there. Therefore, they uh, developed expertise. They were nice clean, you know, of course, they didn't have the financial backing that the whites had. What else but, was there? Okay, you hmm? said, you said, uh... Well, there was school teachers, musicians. No, 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 I'm talking about businesses. Businesses, or there were barbershops, mm -hmm. beauty parlors, mm -hmm. restaurants, mm -hmm. hotels, mm -hmm. uh, even some gas stations that were, were black, mm -hmm. and they were like the Ville in the neighborhood, and uh, they had, uh, like cleaning, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Cleansing, various types of, of uh, creams were devised by blacks, which were there for their skin and not for the white. And the hair, they had different hair products. Poro, Poro College was worldwide famous, right here in St. Louis. And they developed all these cosmetics primarily for black people. Uh, athletics, for instance. Now, as I say here again in the school, some of the best coaches were blacks here in those days. Uh, like Sumner High School in Vashon. And they, yeah, they hired a lot of black people. And of course, they turned out a lot of students that went in other areas and into sports and, and various things. But now we had, and then doctors, I think you'd have to put doctors. There were a lot of medical people black in those days that perhaps didn't come only from Homer Phillips. They came from, uh, from uh, other black places. And a few of them, again, a sprinkling came from white institutions. Yeah, they were in the laboratory, like bacteriologists. They were chemists. And that comprised a pretty large segment of our population. These people were trained technicians. In Detroit, yeah. could you eat where you wanted to eat? No, no. You couldn't? No. Okay. Wayne was right on wood right now. Forget that. One of my classmates wanted to duck in there and get something. I said, I can't eat. He said, what? I was a man couldn't eat in there. And he, he was surprised. Because so, I know some people that came from the East were not used to the segregation no, of no. No, no, but it's in Detroit the same way. Detroit was highly segregated. See, one of the worst race riots ever in history was in Detroit. Because it wasn't Detroit people. Detroit, I'm not getting off the point here, but Detroit brought in a lot of, well, as we say, because the workers. Workers. The, the uh, red nosed people, and they were very pregnant. Rednecks. Rednecks. <laughs> they came from the South because the the jobs attracted them. Mm -hmm. See, those factories paid pretty good money. Especially and during the war. Oh, yeah, and they brought people in from and Georgia, Mississippi, and they settled in Detroit. Therefore, Detroit gave you a hard time for blacks. But St. Louis had an influx also That's from right. the South. That's right, from the South. From the war. Negroes came from the war. And here we were, of course, known for our shoe factories, international shoe factories. But I would say that, that most, well, I put it this way, we had a few lawyers, Lawyers weren't doing too well in those days, so not the black lawyers. Because here again, they ran into the same thing, in all honesty, that we ran into with doctors. Yes. There was certain fit that if you really wanted to get a law case handled, you'd go to the white doctor. Well, that wasn't true. A lot of the blacks were common, but we had that stigma, just like I had the stigma when I opened up. And unless some white person said I was good, I was hard for even to get a black patient to come to the office. So when was the public accommodations? That was in the 64. Yes. Uh, 
what what was it like to be able to go? Well, that's that's we're in the '60s now, but but did things open up at all? Yeah, they opened up, but a lot of the blacks didn't didn't avail themselves of these accommodations right away. They had a sort of resentment. All these years they kept it up, and that that amazed the white population. That amazed the mayor, because when they opened these facilities, they didn't just break the doors down getting in. They did because they continued to do what they'd been doing for years and years and years. Doctor Venable, was it was was it resentment or was it concern and fear? No, it wasn't fear. It was resentment. See, we didn't have the fear here that they had, you know, like no, no, in the fiction. I don't mean fear that, that something would happen to them, but but fear of the. Uh, uh, not knowing how they were going to be treated and received. Well, I don't think that was it so much. I think they they were comfortable where they were, and they stayed where they were, and and uh, they they. Well, how should I put it? It was to let them know all these years you served good, just like the golf course. When the golf course did not the blacks didn't just flock out there to play, and that surprised them. They thought they'd be beaten to but they did. They felt we're going to play where we've been. We're playing the city court that we've been playing. In other words, I think so it, it boils down to one thing, and, and I think this explains a lot of what the black man was, was about. The black man wasn't so anxious to go to the theaters when the white man opened them up. What the black man wanted, and I think this is what I've said over and over again on the radio and I'll say it anywhere, he wanted the option that you or the white person has. You can go to the theater when you want or not go when you want. We wanted that same option. We didn't want to be forced to go to the Fox if we didn't want to go to the Fox. But my little girl stood right across from the Fox. Now we'll forget that Daddy, why can't I go there? Well, I have to go in a long time certain way she can. But this is the thing we hated about segregation. We didn't want to be dictators and now you must go to the Fox, you go to the Fox. No, that wasn't the point at all. We wanted the same option. Just like Martin Luther King with the buses. The blacks got mad because they were forced to sit in the back. What they wanted was the same option that the white man had. He could sit in the back, he could sit in the middle, he could sit in the front, anywhere he wanted. That's the same option we want. Freedom of choice. Freedom of choice. And I think that should be stressed. And that's why history will show that when these people open up all this stuff, that they didn't knock it down like they thought. Same way with segregation out to the ballpark. I had to sit way out in the bleachers. You didn't know what the devil was going on. Unless you had binoculars, you couldn't see nothing much. They, so when they opened up the stands, the blacks didn't just flock in there like they thought. They wanted the option. Now later on, they began. So I think this should be said. It's hard for some, time for some people to understand that. See, that all we want was freedom of choice. Doing what we want to do and be able to do what we want to do when we want to do it. Like everybody else. If they don't want to go in the theater, they don't. You don't want to go eat here, you don't. But you, in other words, I should say uh, that we wanted the right to go, be able to go. And I think that should be stressed because to me, whether it's in medicine or wh whatever it is, this is an option that we would like to have. Did you know anything about the feelings of the black soldier? No, I wasn't in the army. So. No, I know, but I, I just wondered if you had any contacts with it. I didn't have too much. Back feeling, except some of the doctors were in the armed services, and mm -hmm. I've heard them talk about it. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Whitaker and Dr. the late Dr. Bill Allen, who was a uh, colonel, uh, he talked about it extensively when they went to Fort Pachuca, and then they went, some of them went overseas. But I've had no experience at all with the armed services. Where did you live during the 40s and 50s? Well, I, I, I lived at Homer Phillips first, because I wasn't married and I stayed there. Uh, but then I, I bought a home over on Wagner Place, over on the west end. Wagner Place was about uh, next to Cor. It's about uh, two blocks north of Martin Luther King, they call it now, but that days it was Easton Avenue. Now it's called Martin Luther King Boulevard, kind of fancy. Uh -huh. So it was on the west end. I stayed there for seven years. Uh, uh, no, no, we, I, I, we moved there in 1944, yeah. And then in, uh, in 1953, then I moved out at Hanley Road, and that's where we had our problem. But uh, Hanley Road, we stayed there until 1956, I believe. And then we got this property of that Creed Corps. That's all. Are you familiar with that? Uh, well, I am, but I want you to talk about right, well, it. Because that has to do with restrictive covenants. Yes, it does, yeah. So 
Well, in, uh, in 1953, we moved in this home on Henley Road. It was a very fine home. It was a woman pool, a little golf course, which I made. And we loved the place. It was very nice. Right? And then the highway came through and took it. So in 19... Is that right? Right at Highway 40, and 40. not far from you. Hanley mm -hmm. Road, Highway 40. Right. That's where my house was, where okay. the highway was. But the highway took the house when they... So we had to move. So we moved, and we, we uh, heard about some property being available out of Grieve Court called Spady Meadows. It was about uh, one block uh, uh, east of Ledoux Road. It was halfway between Ledoux Road and Olive Street Road. And uh, this contractor, or developer, named, uh, that's not it, but anyway, they said they had a plaque out there was we're going to call Speedy Meadows, and they had 22 acres of ground there, and they were going to put some blacks in there. Well, we didn't know what was going on. And uh, so this fellow's name was O'Donnell. He was a real estate man, actually. He was the one. So we decided this looked pretty good, so we went out and saw this property, and we put a certain amount of money down. Just you or were there other people? No, there were, there were 16 other people in this thing with us. But we were the only one that actually built anything. Nobody well, else built. There were 16 black Yeah, people. 16 black doctors. Now, the school did, did the real estate, everybody, was it, were they aware that you were, uh, that you were black? Yeah, the real estate, but the people weren't so much. The people in the surrounding area became a little indignant. And it became very, very critical for us. But uh, we, we, uh, Put this one and let me, well, let me go into a kind of detail so that we get the proper perspective here now. So they came to us and said that this property was available while we lived it, and we had to leave our place here. In fact, we stayed at this hotel, I guess, for about, oh, about a year or so because we didn't have anywhere to go and didn't have a home, and we were trying to build out here in Creve Corps. Uh, so that Kingsway Hotel, which is recently mm. been torn down. Anyway, I'll make a long story short. So then, we proposition with O'Donnell, he had to be a real estate man, and he said, okay, so we put a certain amount of money down in the property, I won't say the price, I don't think that's relevant at this time, but at least there were 16 of us that went into this, but then the word circulated around that this was black, so forth, and, and the people in the community became a little resistant. And it all ended up with the fact that we were actually not supposed to build. The whole thing was a charade from the beginning, which we didn't know. A charade? A charade. There was never any intent for any of us to build anything in there. What happened was, and we found this out through our lawyers, that the idea was to cause a stir in the Creve Curve community that blacks were moving in. So, that being the case, he sold this land to the blacks and got them so, the neighborhood so upset that he got the black people scared because they were scared they said, and they all turned the money back to him and then he turned around and sold the property to the white people for twice of what they paid so he made a fortune he made something like $250,000 off the whole deal but what he wasn't counting on was how rental the line was different than I am today for good or bad we decided we had bought our property we were the only one we had bought our property cash we owned it and he couldn't take it and that caused him a certain amount. Now, his architect, whom he had, we bought him out. And he started building a house for us. And that wasn't in the plan. We were never supposed to build anything. We found that out in court. Now, one other thing. The Jewish people were in the same block. The temple was right on the corner of this same long block. They were having problems with the same people. They tried to keep them from building Temple Israel. They said, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. So we were both in court at the same time. So their lawyers and our lawyers worked together to fight this thing which was vicious. They were against them because they were Jewish. They were against me because they were black. And they had to make up these very stupid laws to take care of both of us. But what happened, the law they made up for the Jews let us in. The laws they made up for us let the Jews in. So they were really in a predicament. It was interesting. Because the whole thing revolved around eminent domain. Eminent domain was the thing they decided to get both of us out. Eminent domain, they could get us out, declare that whole property our park, which is, is today. Birney Park, Birney was the mayor, so they made a park, six-acre park. 
we own four acres ourselves. All right, so they added two more acres. It's what they call make look legitimate. So they would go with the, with the, uh, with the church with Temple Israel. Say, eminent domain, we're going to make that a park, and it can't be a church. All right. Well, make a long story. That case went all the way to the Supreme Court. Ours did. But the judge finally ruled that eminent domain has priority. But even though that eminent domain was based on prejudice, because they tried to buy us out about ten times, we wouldn't sell. Then they slapped on this eminent domain, which showed. Now, then they went to the Jewish people, and what they didn't realize, that religion had priority over eminent domain. Over this one. And that's why Temple Israel won. The judge ruled that, that religion has priority. Now, here's where they made the mistake. They sold those 20 acres to Temple Israel. And they want to make a park out of it. And the judge said, oh, you can't do that. He said, why do you think the church bought that property? They weren't going to build a baseball park. It was a church now. They were going to build a temple. So they threw it out, and Temple Israel was able to build. They had us on eminent domain. Now, the interesting thing in this whole thing, and history will show, is it almost defies imagination. But the woman who came out for us was Miss Weir whose husband, right after that, was shot and killed on the job on Olive Street Road by one of his, he was a water commissioner, shot dead. And I wrote her a letter, in fact, I went out to see him, because she was one of the lonely ones that came out in our defense. And what she said rang around the world, if you ever get that paper. She said, we need another part like we need a hole in the head. She came out and called me and said, Dr. Venable, what they're trying to do with you is ridiculous. We don't need another park in Creve Corps. We can't find our children now. And it's a damn shame, and these were her words, that a nice man like you, a distinguished ophthalmologist, known nationally, can't find a place to put your family here. She said that. All right, now we got other half from Archbishop Ritter. Archbishop Ritter came out and said, everyone I catch protesting Dr. Venable, fight will be excommunicated from my church. They had a meeting out there in his house on Moses Road or something where he was living. So we had a lot of support. Letters came from us. But what happened, you see, the councilmen, there were four of them, they were getting money all the way from California, New Mexico, to fight this thing. We didn't know it. It was a big one to keep us out. They were getting paid some of them 10, 15, 20,000 dollars, more money than they'd ever seen in this world to vote us out. All right, well, they succeeded. But let me tell you what happened, and this has been coming. After they left office, the new mayor invited us to come back in there and build, finish building. See, the house was halfway up, and they condemned it. House was there. Who was the mayor? Hmm? Birney. Birney was the mayor. Was the time. new mayor? No, no, he was. He was no, the mayor. Who's the one that came in? I don't know who he was, but anyway, he said we could come back. But by that time, we had started building ball where we are now. Somebody said, No, we're not going through that somewhere. But I'm showing you how things change. We were asked to come back in there, and the people voted the four councilmen out. They voted them out. That fought against it. So that's what that happened. But that case went all the way to the Supreme Court and had a lot to do with covenant and everything else. You say freedom of residence, they helped us because we stuck it out, but it helped a lot of other people. There was, there was a similar case in Deerfield, similar to ours, in which our case helped them. Same thing. They had 31 acres, and eight people moved in there, and they condemned the whole 31 acres. How did freedom of residence help you? It helped us by giving us counseling. We they helped us with meetings. I guess I went to about 30, 40 different meetings, and just told them what my problem was, and they helped us. They wrote to certain congressmen. They wrote to the state. They were very helpful. I'm trying to think of this lady who was Porter. Yeah, Porter. And not only that, there was a, there was another lady. Porter was good. Oh, do you know Hattie? Yeah, Hattie Epstein, sure, she helped us, oh, tremendously. And she, they gave little uh, social affairs to help us. And, and even in those days, uh, and uh, so she that... She has to be remembered, did you? Oh, yeah, huh? oh, she did? Oh, she was so nice. But I mean, but our case helped, because unless you stand up and fight, you don't have a case. All the other people took their money out, because they scared them. They scared them. Said, if you don't get your money out of here, you'll lose everything. I went to him and said, look, you can't lose your money. If you, that lot is yours. 
even though it's down payment, it's like a car. If you make a down payment on the car, that car is yours. Unless you default on the payments, they can't take that away. They got scared. They said, oh, no. I said, okay. And the irony of it is, after all these years, only one person has built a home today that was in there with me. I went out and built a home right away. So if they were so anxious to get out, as they said, we're going to build a home. We don't want that. They haven't built it. Nobody's built a home. So it just shows you how, how life is. None of them have built a home yet. They've moved in somewhere, apartments or something. A lot of them are in the same home that they were in there. Was something like this written up a lot in the Argus? Oh, yeah. In the Post-Dispatch? It was written, not on the Post-Dispatch, it was written in national papers. Mm -hmm. It was written up all over the country. My mother was reading it in Detroit. It was everywhere I go they knew. Because when it went to the Supreme Court, it was national news. Mm -hmm. This Creve Court issue. But how did you, how did, I mean, like your patients, how, how were you? How was it? Well, the patients all knew about it because it, it was know, in the I, paper I, I, every day. But how, how, what kind of feedback did you get? Well, it was mixed. It was mixed. I should say some of the people resented it because they were trying to move to Creek Park. Why don't you stay on Taylor? Why don't you stay on Easton? Why don't you stay on uh, Enright? Why are you have to go out there? Here again. Were they afraid that you were making trouble for them too? No, no. They, they had the feeling, some of them, I must have felt I thought I was better. And they were, that wasn't the point. Yeah. Uh, my point was going back to what we said. I wanted freedom of choice. I wanted to be able to move anywhere that I had money I felt I could move to. Just like a white doctor with comparable uh, financial status could move anywhere he wanted. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, and that's what I. That's all I wanted because nobody could say I, I did because I spent ninety percent of my time in the Negro community, helping. With a lot of times, helping and never got a dime. I work with all of the the uh, agencies. There must have civil been, agencies. There must have been a pull, a pull for for Negroes at that time. A what? A pull. A, a, what do you mean? Well, a, a d difficult decisions in wanting, as you say, the freedom of choice uh, to be able to do things, and yet. Um, Emotion, emotionally, for whatever reason and whatever background you had, yeah. uh, not wanting to step out, being afraid, being concerned, not not having uh, support. Uh, you found support. Maybe some people didn't find support. Or maybe they didn't even look for it. Uh, but you, you see, as I go through my said, life, sister, had, it's had, the same thing in all areas. There's a, there's a common thing that runs through all of these. Same way in the hospitals. Same way on the golf course. As God would have it do, I was a spirit. Same way in golf. Nobody else cared. I was the one. I went to the paper, went down there and blasted them. But when, that, when it was open, those other guys beat me to the golf course. But they wouldn't stand up and say one thing in the meeting. Same way in housing. Same way in the hospitals. The hospitals, there were 16 hospitals. Now that's important in the history. That the, that the church affiliated hospital, and this is all in the post-dispatch and all a part of history, which is very important. It's the same thing. Sixteen hospitals would not, affect, would not admit Negro doctors to their staff, which was terrible. And some of these were affiliated with the church, and that's how I got into it, because I was vice president of the Metropolitan Church Federation. And when they elected me vice president, this was my entering lecture, and I took the office. And I condemned them that there were 16 hospitals in this area affiliated with this organization that will not take a black doctor. They couldn't believe it. I said, I've done the survey. I'm listing their names. Phil Dr. Brown said, too. The Post sent people out. That time we had the, uh, what's this other paper? Star. Star. They all sent their people out. And they revealed the same hospital, and every one of them was the same as what I had. St. Luke's was the main, because I was mad at St. Luke's because I'm an Episcopalian all my life, practically. And it so happened that Father uh, uh, Nicholson, who was my priest at All Saints on King's High, had a thyroid, wanted to go in the hospital. He wanted to go to St. Luke's, which was his uh, choice. He was Episcopalian, Episcopal Hospital. They said, uh-uh, you can't be in St. Luke's. You can't bring Dr. Bellman in here. Dr. Sinker was his surgeon. Dr. Smith was his intern. We were all members of all things. I was his ophthalmologist. Uh-uh. Sorry. 
So he ended up going to people's. Then to show you, I blasted them. Like me, I blasted them. I said, this is ridiculous. Here we got a black priest and these doctors, and we're all qualified, and we can't get in St. Louis. What's the problem? I said, well, you're black. That's the problem. And they told Father Nin, now a lot of priests would have gone on and went to St. Luke's and left us out. He could. That's what he said. But he said, no, I'm not going to do it. But here again, to show you how ridiculous segregation is, it just doesn't make any sense at all. So I applied. St. Luke's. Mm -hmm. And here's where the papers took it up and really helped me. After five years, I hadn't even looked at my application. Finally, the papers jumped on them. I wrote them another letter, and the media just torn to pieces. What's wrong? What's, what's happening here with Dr. Bell? said, well, we looked at his application, and it's not current. They said, what are you talking about? How can it be current when it's been lying in your file for five years, and this Fitzpatrick who makes these little uh, pictures in the paper, mm -hmm. he showed them dusting off my files. Oh, really? Uh, and that made them sick. Mm -hmm. And to this day, St. Luke's, Luke's would not let me understand. They called me a rabble-rouser. But as a result of that, now this show you what can happen. Mm -hmm. The St. Louis Metropolitan Church Federation let it be known that they were forming uh, what they call uh, a board, a committee to go around and check each hospital files and to see why they can't take any files. Now this is a matter of history and I feel good about it because I feel that I must say that I did it. They, they just, and here was the thing, just the fact that they said they were coming was all they needed. Within six months, now this is history, every one of those hospitals started taking black files. Every one. Just a threat to show how stupid this whole thing was. They didn't want him to come and find out what I had found because that would have been shameful. What indeed. year was this, approximately? That was about 19, I'd say about 1963 because I became chairman in 1962. That's why I know what it was because the Post blasted it on their front page. Dr. Venable condemned 16 hospitals for racism in this area. And every one of them, St. Luke's was heading the list. I felt worse about St. Luke's because I thought of any hospital. Here I am, Episcopalian, I was senior warden, I, and I should be able to treat a black priest who was Episcopalian in an Episcopal hospital. You see? So, it, so just the threat, it all opened it out. But they didn't take me, but they took other black doctors. Okay, but that show you what can be done. Now, every one of those hospitals has black doctors. But it had to be, had to be spirited. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but as I say, none of those doctors put up a fight. I did it all by myself. Nobody else would come to my aid. They wouldn't get on the radio. They said, no, doctor, we don't want to get involved, Dr. Bell. I said, what do you mean get involved? No. So okay, I'll do it myself. But it so happened, everybody benefited but me. But not on that, Lutheran took me right away. Uh, Christian's Hospital Northeast, Northwest took me right away. And so other hospitals, St. Joseph out here, where I'm close to live now, they took me right away. So I mean, so, but St. Matthew's, I mean, St. Uh, Luke's was one that would not take me. They just felt I was a rabbi. So, okay, I don't need you. Did the NASDP have uh, anything? But they didn't do anything. They, they, they said they would, just like the NAACP, when we went to court, they, they what they call, they become joint. Uh, but they didn't do anything particularly. They helped us, really. We didn't get any finance from them. And as it turned out, that's about the way we want. My wife and I said, let's put in our own money and we'll do it ourselves. You're talking about the housing? The right, housing, right, yeah. Under, all right, we'll do the it. hospital? Yeah. No, they didn't do anything. The NAACP, nobody had to solve that. Uh, uh, the but NAACP did Cor, became... Did CORE have anything to do with... The, the, with the hospital? No, with the... CORE, no, CORE didn't have anything to do with... But the Freedom of Residence helped us out in housing. Mm -hmm. NAACP became, what do they call... Uh, Friend of court or something like that is the word to use with us in our fight. Mm -hmm. But they didn't put up any money. We, mm -hmm. My wife and I felt we wanted to do that ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that way we wouldn't be obligated to anybody. We'd go on and fight this thing, but it helped so many people. See, because right after that, the Jewish people moved all around there. Of course, the Temple is, they moved all around the church. See, they were against Jewish people too. That was odd because they didn't want their church there. Mm -hmm. So that helped them. And I, and I could have been back in there, but my wife and I decided, no, we had already started to build mm -hmm. in Baldwin. 
So, but the hope, the hospitals have opened up, and we were happy to see that. So your life has really uh, been one of constant change. Yes, it has. Yeah, it has. Because I've suffered tremendously, but I'm not bitter. And that's one thing I will say honestly, and I think I try to teach that to them, don't be bitter. A lot of people have gone through these things, you turn the other cheek, but I say somewhat facetiously, you soon run out of cheeks. But you have to because somewhere down the line, there's people that will help you. What, and and that's what I mean by that. There's people like you and other people like this historical thing, that was so nice. Because the, in other words, I think the mistake we make, and I've said that honestly and openly, that we get too self-conscious. And one person got up and said that in, uh, in, in, in one of our meetings when we were having trouble with housing in Creveport, one of the seminars we had. Well, Dr. Donald, don't you just hate everybody? I said, no, I don't. Because you people here tonight, the people that have written my wife and I hundreds and hundreds of letters, showing that you just uh, uh, hate this type of thing, that you condemn the type of thing they're doing, that shows us that there's friends, there's just people that love us and we love them. And I said, and that, that's what we want. I said, these people are in a minority that are fighting us, but it so happens they occupy a strategic position, but it would be a fallacy. And fallacious for me to feel that all white people are like that, I would be as dumb as crazy as they are. They can't be. Say so we must work. To, so I feel, and I say honestly, this has not made me bitter at all because I think if it had, that would have been a mistake on my part. There was so much going on in the 40s and 50s yeah. as far as all over the country. Yes, it was. I mean, as yes. far as change. That's what I'm saying. There was change, and, 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 and so you had to adapt to this change. Uh, but you can't be bitter. You know, just go away and, and go on and do your best and, 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 and try to prepare yourself and be grateful and, and, and for people that are some people that help you. Did, did you uh, go to lectures when people would come from, when leaders would come, or lawyers or, or other doctors would come from other parts of the country? Did, that, did they do that? I, I, well, I know that Civil, what kind of rights, did you mean? civil rights leaders would come from different parts of the countries, but did you, you did your own civil rights, you, you, you worked it in your own way, but did you have doctors come from different hospitals to, to lecture and... No, we didn't do that too much, not in those days. In fact, it was hard to get doctors to do that. Everybody was a little wimpy in those days, you see. Well, there was a money problem too. Well, there was a money problem, but I must say doctors are... are Doctors in general are wimpy, so I will say that honestly from my association with them and being one. They are afraid to take a stand. And why, I don't know, because if anybody is independent, it's the doctor. He's got his practice. Yeah. He's got his own his individual. Skill, nobody can skill. take that away He can't from take him. that away from him. You've got to practice those patients. But the doctors are afraid, like they were in Creekport. They were afraid. See, they had about 16 people, 14 of them are doctors. They're afraid. When I went up against these hospitals, the doctors were afraid. I said, what can you lose? You can't get in there now. How, how, how worth it? They can't take nothing away from me. You're not going to talk to them. We just don't want to get in I said, what do you got to lose? Well, is it, is it only doctors, or is it just people at that Well, time? it's people. But I would say, to me, I was just amazed. It was doctors when they're so self-sufficient. Yeah. I said, you go yard, you got 20 or 30 people waiting on you. These patients are going to come to you. It isn't like some man saying the school system. Where if he bucks the, the status quo, his job may be on the line. Your job is not on the line. Yeah, but you have a history of, of being put down. Nice. Yeah. Whether it's in your Some school. people can't take that. No, you're right. Some people can't take that of being, being put down. And But a lot of people just aren't fighters. And I'm saying that honestly, I guess, without being too proud. I've been one all my life. And I felt that I had to fight. And I always felt that, that, that you're not going to get any more then you fight for it. Well, the 40s and 50s was a time of fighting. It was a time of yeah. sit-ins. Yeah. But fighting helps you, too, because people realize that you're not going to take a lot of stuff. And it helps you. And it helped me when I moved to Baltimore. Because the people yeah. felt this fight helped me there? very good. Because Baldwin was out to show Creepcore. I say that to you, and I've said it before. We're going to show Creepcore what they've missed by not having you as a citizen. We took our plans out there. Didn't have any trouble. And it was tough out there. We had to go to the Board of Honor. 
I didn't open an office out there. In those days, you had to take your plans out before the board of all them. They could reject you. It wasn't like it is now. You just pay your lease. Uh-uh. And knew who you were. So Dr. Bell, we're so glad to have you. Well, so it worked in my favor. They were out to show this whole community that Creed Corps made a mistake. Did the newspapers follow that up? Oh, yeah, they did. They followed up, and I built my home out there. You see, because it was a rather out there, pretty unique home. We had 12 acres. We have our own swimming pool. We have a tennis court. I got a golf course all on my own property. Which I built nine holes, but it's it's a pitch and putt course. See, I have eight acre golf course, which I built myself. And this fellow named Link Oval from Westwood came over and helped me design. Um, hmm? When are you going to ask me to play? You play golf? Uh huh. Well, my golf course is just right now only half of we use four acres. It's just pitch and putt. Uh, I cut the grass every day now and get out there early. So you do that. You're a pro. I'll have you out there one of these days. But anyway. <laughs> So, so there was a lot. They came out there and took pictures of it in the newspapers and media when we moved out and they came out and we had them out and they, like one of the guys played tennis and so forth and we had the swimming pool. So, you know, it's, 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 and we've had it for several organizations. So it, it's, uh, it's without, again, I don't want to be too personal, but it's quite a, a show place for people that come to the city look at it. And in the golf course now, I'm trying to get it back in shape. It takes a little while because I haven't been been having too much time. But now that I'm retiring, I work on it every day because the golf course is a lot of work. But this fellow, Linko, he's dead now. But he, he was so nice to me. He came over and worked with it. And we use eight acres. Now I just use four acres because I didn't have time. But I'm going to open up those four acres. But so that we go out there and play. If you were to sum up the 40s and 50s, could you, could you do it? Mm -hmm. Well, I would say the 40s, segregation was rampant, as you would expect, and as the Negroes tried to progress, they met certain obstacles. These obstacles were due to the fact that they had not been in certain areas before which made it easier for their own people to resent it, to raise obstacles also, justly so, because they had not been in these areas. For instance, if they had a Cadillac car, they wouldn't take it to a Negro because they didn't think you knew anything about a Cadillac. Yet, as, as the statistics would show, a large percentage of people of means of black and Cadillac. Uh, if they wanted something really done, uh, the, they went to the white. And in medicine, too. Certain areas like neurosurgery, we didn't have any. Allergy, we didn't have any. Ophthalmologists, I was only one. And uh, they didn't think we knew too much about that. So there were certain designated areas that they felt that we were not rightly or wrongly not competent in. So that created problems. Now, as the 40s waned and we come into the 50s, that wasn't true as much because then the blacks did develop expertise in these areas. But you still ran into problems with the white. A lot of white resented the fact that you were becoming, you were becoming ethnic because then you're competition. That's right. See, we were competition to them. So we ran into another phase which was difficult to adjust to. So uh, it's like when I moved in the county, you see, I, I, I moved there in 1966. I was one of the first tenants in that building, 99% of my patients were white and my wife being my secretary just couldn't believe it. So Dr. Will, I just don't understand. These people send your, their children to you, to us, and they come here, they don't ask any questions. So I sat her down and said, honey, it's a different aspect. I said, because when these people see that you're trained, and they've checked me out, they know I'm at the university, they know I teach, that's all. They, they send their kids here, they know I'm properly trained. They, say, they, they feel they don't ask the questions. They say, well, they don't ask questions. I said, well, yes, because your own people are still a little suspicious. Because, you see, they come from the same, it's a lot like going home to practice and practicing in St. Louis. If I went back to Wayne today and tried to open an office, there's people there that knew me when I pitched horseshoe. There's people there that knew me when I played ball. There's people there that knew me before I was a doctor. And they made this one, and now this man, I wonder if he's really. But these people see me as a doctor, see me as a professional. They have never seen me as nothing else. They don't have those questions. And it's ironic, but true. Do you feel that the color of, of the black skin made a difference 
whether it was fair or dark or not. Yeah. I don't think so. I, I really don't think so, and I'm happy to say that. Uh, sometimes the, the Negro that is fair runs into all sorts of complicated because they don't know what he is. And sometimes he, he can integrate into the white society, which he can because of his color. But another black is part of another black, you know, I don't care what color it is, in certain ways, and which we just laugh because we know we use the word, uh, quote, he's passing and so forth. Well, however, that can backfire. But I, I'm happy to say more and more that color doesn't seem to play a, a greater part as it used to. If you're qualified, that's the main thing, if you're qualified. But the reason for that, again, going back to what we said before, that these mothers now feel they must have their children identify with Japanese and all races, all types of creeds, because in life, this is what it is. And I'm happy to see in, in the movies, and they're showing this more and more. Like the Bill Cosby show, you couldn't put oh. that show on ten years ago. No. Here's a black obstetrician. All the patients they showed were white. They'd have thrown that thing out, and the whole South would have turned the program off. You know that, I know it. But now they show it, and it's number one. It is. It's number one on there. I said to but my husband. It's real. I said to my husband last night, "What time is it?" He says, "It's a few minutes before For seven. Sure. I well, said, sure. "I'll see you." Well, sure, sure. <laughs> but but this isn't just on 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 the tube. It happens every day. The black doctors are treating some places all white patients. And white doctors are treating all black patients. I said out in the county. For years and years. I guess I was out there about eight or ten years before I had a single black patient. And now I've been out there, as I say, I opened in 1966. And I guess I've seen about eight or ten black patients in all that time. So you see, it, the people accept you more and more, and God knows I'm black, I'm not a mulatto or anything, they can't confuse me, but I think more and more people accept you, which I think is encouraging, on your qualifications. And rather than the color of your skin, that all goes back, I think, to the late Martin Luther King. One day, people will accept you, as he said. He hoped his children can walk down the street and be judged not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. And I think that's what slowly happens. It'll take a while. It's going to take a while. But on the other hand, with blacks, we have another problem, of course, with black. Blacks, it, it's a, uh, how should I put it? it? It's a social consciousness that they have arrived, and blacks are like nobody else, anybody else. So it's a certain awareness of their social register that they will go along with the white because to them it means they've arrived. And I could see that. A lot of the white doctors I trained, they would go to them rather than come to me. Because to them going to a white doctor that kind of even pronounces his name, maybe he's German or something, it's big. I could see that. I don't understand that. I, because I try to understand where they're coming from. You're talking about black doctors? Black people. Black, black, no, not black doctors, black people black in the community. Uh -huh. They'll go to some white doctor in Clayton or somewhere. Mm -hmm. Because and, and, that's, that's... It shows they've arrived. Financially. That he'll take them. Yeah, he'll take them. And, and it's a good talking point at the card game, at the poker game, at the bridge club. Mm -hmm. Just like, the, oh, I'm sending my child to Oxford. I'm sending my child, not I say to Harvard, to get him out of Harvard. It's a good talking point. Mm -hmm. Now I understand I'm getting very, trying to talk with Jewish people, they have that same problem. They, they have it. And in and the whites. Right. The more I integrate myself, the more I see this is not just characteristic black. It's characteristic of people that are anxious to show that they are people of competence and of means. That's why they get their Mercedes. Mm -hmm. It's a nice talking point. I got a Mercedes. I got that well. But I found again that the richer the person becomes, the less he dwells on the cars. The less he dwells on where his kids are being trained. People that don't have the means jump at that as a means of of uh, informing people that they have the means. Yeah. The person that really has the means never brings it up because he knows darn well you know what he's got. And I found that working for a Ford Motor Company. Ford would drive up there in the smallest car you could ever find. Well, here was a multi-multi-millionaire. And I found Shining Shoes in Detroit. I learned a lot about people that the richest people gave you the smallest tip. 
They give you a dime or a nickel, fine. This guy that didn't have nothing and pull out his pocketbook, gave you a dollar to that may be all he's got. He was trying to impress me. So this this is life, it is nice to understand that. See, that the big people, they don't have to ride around in Mercedes or Rolls Royce. You know they got it and they know they may drive up in a Pinto, so what? That is not part of their everyday society, you see. So I think, so this is what I'm saying to you, that there's certain blacks today that will never have a black doctor, no matter how good he is. And I'm saying this on, I know something. Yet, they're sending their kids to school to be doctors. It's ironic. And I said, now wait a minute. And I told one of them, because they were a pretty good friend. If everybody felt the way you feel, how is your son going to make a living? I can talk to you honestly because you and I have been friends for 30 years. Who is he going to treat? All white? Said, no, doctor. Well, when's the last time you've been to a white doctor? Well, you black doctor. Black doctor. Well, I haven't been to one in 20, 30 years. You've got So this is what I'm saying. So you see how ridiculous mm -hmm. this thinking can be. How have your, uh, how have your, the reality of your life lived up to your expectations? Well, uh, my realities have been, I've been encouraged by the fact that some things in which I had no control happened, which, and I'll give you one incident to me that turned me around. I was selected to be an associate member of the board of Optima, which was indeed a high honor. Because here you're examining candidates from all over. I knew I'd made one of the highest marks on the board as everyone made because Dr. Green, who was secretary of the board, told me. Mm -hmm. Is that still going? Yeah, it's yeah. going good. Oh. So, when I was selected to be an associate, and I was the first black in the country given that honor to be actually an examiner for a board in medicine. Ophthalmology, I was the first one. First? First one. Black. I was in 1959. First? The first black ever to examine on any board examining for medicine, I'm talking especially for mm -hmm. That was quite an honor, 1959. So examining your own peers. Yeah, but I, but I asked them, what was the greatest thing that I did that made you feel I was confident in this job? That Dr. Bell, this might shock you because you've done a lot of work at the university. You've done a lot of work at St. Louis University. You've done a lot of work with American College of Surgery. But what you don't realize that the thing that we felt made you confident was the work you did at Homer Phillips Hospital. Almost fell off the floor. Yeah. Why? Because the doctors that you trained, every one of them did well on this board. That told us something right there. And we got nothing but good recommendations about your teaching and how you took these doctors and helped them and trained them. And the result of that was when they came before this board and there they had their records right in front of them. This is how they did. And we know because they had no other training but yours. <laughs> At that time, they couldn't get anywhere else. You trained. We felt you're the man to come on this board and examine with us. Well, that's what I'm saying. Great reason. Yeah. That, to me, showed the power again of Homer Phillips Hospital. This is what I tell people. This is where it's at. It was special. Yeah. It was a shining jewel. Right? Yeah, it sure was. And uh, if, we were, if we were to go into the reason of its decline, which we will not do, because we will do that maybe next year. Yeah. Well, this is something I want when to I talk, talk about some other time, because well, a lot of people have, have wrong ideas of why it declines. Well, it's important, and we will yeah. do that, because yeah. uh, this year we will be doing we're 40s yeah. and 50s, and next yeah. year we'll be going into the... Okay, yeah. But I'd be happy because that's another whole story. But there's a reason a lot of people don't understand. Yeah. Well, it was I, political. There's a whole lot of other factors. I want to thank you. Yeah. Let me ask you before we turn this yeah. Is there something that I have not brought up that's during these years uh, that you feel that uh, you would like to talk about? Well... <clears throat> But I would like to talk about the fact that it all hasn't been obstruction, it all hasn't been segregation. That the only way we can progress is by having people work with us, white people primarily, in strategic areas who helped us. These people, I can never say too much for them. 
a lot of them are anonymous and they wish to remain anonymous. But without them, we could get nowhere. Because we were not in a position to help our own people. We didn't have the status, we didn't have the know-how, we didn't have, quote-unquote, the connections. Now, therefore, to help us, taking myself as an example, I couldn't get on the American Board of Ophthalmology staff unless somebody there wanted me. I couldn't go to New York University unless a professor wanted me. We didn't have no blacks there. So it had to be some white man who was interested in helping me. It had to be some white people that were interested in helping me. I couldn't get in the, the, uh, the St. Louis Ophthalmological Society unless there were five white doctors who were interested in me enough to go to this one man that was black. Now, if they hadn't been there, I wouldn't be in perhaps today. So what I'm saying is this is an encouraging thing, and this is what I tell my residents. With all of the racial segregation, with all of the, of the uh, segregation against you, don't be bitter. Because once you're bitter, you lose everything. I say give every person a chance. Give a man a chance to show himself. Meet him halfway or maybe go a little beyond halfway. Be friends. Don't assume that everybody that has been against you, uh, uh, that everybody's against you because some people are. Because then you hurt yourself and you will keep yourself from progressing. Keep an open mind. I said, I've tried to live what I preach. Right now, I keep an open mind. I'm friendly, I go, you know, I smile. I'm very congenial because I feel that these people weren't against me, but they're helping me. But you're giving it back. Because yeah, I have to give back. You're doing this tape, which will help sure. uh, make and it And when exhibit. these white students come to me, I'm trying to be just as nice and help them as much as I you're can. You're still teaching. Because sure. These because to me, they had nothing to do with what's happened to me. It's up to me to be a teacher and put all this behind me. See, because these same white people, now we got blacks over there in our program, these white doctors are being nice to my black students. They're nice to these people in the program. My wife and I set up just the other day. They told me, oh, these two people you got it out of there just one. So this is what I'm saying. So, I mean, this is a continuing type of thing. If they're nice, and, and the two people are going to talk to them today, one talking to Matt Williams, the other fellow from, 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 from Baylor, and they just tell them they're just so nice. So this is what I want. And I think more and more is going back to what Martin Luther King said, we'll get there someday where, where people will just be nice how, to you. How old were you when your parents passed away? Well, my, well, let's see. My mother's still living. She's you 97. Okay. I go up to see her about every three or four months. But my father died when he was 55. He died at the age of 55. Give your mother a message for me. Mm -hmm. She sure did a good job. Well, thank you. That's so sweet. And I want to thank you. Yeah, well, I'm happy to. And you're doing a good job. <laughs> okay. Any way I can do to help you. Well, you because, did. Because uh, I'm always available because this is a type of thing that I think should be known. Mm -hmm. That's important. Yeah. Okay. okay.